So, good evening. Sometimes on the uh, the second night of uh, retreat, we talk about um, the the hindrances. Um, the forces that kind of um, fragment the mind of ill will and aversion, sleepy, drowsy, sloth and torpor, restlessness and doubt, those five. And normally um, that's the subject of the talk. I'm not going to give a talk about that, but I'm going to give you the cliff notes. So, ill will, aversion, we say hatred can never end well. Greed, we say you're chasing the shimmering mirage at the end of the highway. Sloth and torpor, We say, sit up straight, open your eyes, be patient, notice the phenomena of sleepiness. Restlessness, we say, uh, at least you're not tired. And um, and doubt, we basically say, trust us. Yeah. Look at them. Would they lie to you? <laughs> them. Trust them. So. Um, Is, uh, is retreat real life? Is it real life? Or is it some kind of um, parallel universe that we go to and then depart from back to our real life? And um, sometimes people ask me when I sit retreat as a student, you know, like, they hear a little bit about it and what I do, and they're kind of like, why Why would you ever go on retreat? It's a fair question. And I don't say this, but the thought I have is kind of like, what do you think you are av- get to avoid in not going on retreat? Yeah. Like, if, if I thought that I could avoid all spirit rock-ish experiences by not going to spirit rock, I would never go to spirit rock. <laughs> if it were that simple, if it were just about actually containing the flows of pleasure and pain in this basic way, we could just choose, right? But um, something very important shifts when 
there's a real sense of like, there's nowhere to go except into the heart. There, there really isn't any way I would have spent these years and time practicing if I thought there was like a truly viable alternative. If I thought I could somehow navigate through the labyrinth and like find my way to the other side without moving right into the center of my heart. So the the Dhammapada recorded sayings of the Buddha um, begins with um, all experiences preceded by mind, led by mind, made by mind. All experience is preceded, led, made by mind. Everything, all of our experience, is is mediated by our mind, right? We don't have contact with the world as it is. It's mediated by our mind. And that doesn't mean that the world doesn't matter. Um, But what it does mean is that we're always doing something to the world. We're always doing something to it. And that is actually good news because that, that means there is the possibility of uh, a lot more space than we might guess. When, um, when we don't understand that, what happens is we sort of um, keep trying to rearrange the conditions of our life to solve existential questions. And it doesn't work. We, we can't resolve certain questions by rearranging conditions. And so it is possible for us to kind of always be fiddling with samsara, you know, with this samsara, this realm, this realm of existence. And it is possible to fidget our way from cradle to grave. And that um, is actually tragic. To live alienated from the heart. And so we start to see, yeah, the conditioning of our mind conditions everything. The conditioning of our mind conditions everything. And that is um, actually quite empowering to see. Um, because otherwise, we sort of misdiagnose our suffering. Yeah. And we usually get too simple in how we apportion blame. Yeah. 
So it's this fault or that fault or but we look more deeply, we start to see the conditioning of our mind, of the world, and it's it's not like it's that thing's fault. It's more like it's if we had to say something, it might be it's everything's fault or nothing's fault. Our models, our understanding of how suffering is generated gets more complex. We go from like single cause to a much more elaborate understanding of how suffering arises. And so um, retreat is, um, is a kind of screen against which we can see the shadow of our mind and our conditioning. Retreat is a screen against which we see the shadow of our pain and the shadow of our goodness. And so what I want to suggest as we begin here is like, no, this is, this is real life. Yeah. This is an opportunity actually to perceive real life, to perceive the human condition with a lot of care. And what arises in the context of retreat is um, it is not an accident, nor is it your fault. It's not an accident, nor is it your fault, what arises. It's not an accident insofar as my my conditioning as a as an animal as a person with history with ancestors with in this culture on this day in this year all of that leaves a kind of um, trace effects yeah and our conditioning kind of ripens in the silence and simplicity of retreat. And maybe aversion comes up for one person and clinging for another, and that is not an accident. That, that is really the, the logic of the Dharma, the logic of retreat. The, the pain that arises is not an accident. Before um, before I was was uh, teaching, I was doing um, doing research, and um, one of the my mentors in the lab was doing um, doing pharmacogenetic research. So the idea being that uh, genetics, a genetic profile, can impact how a medicine affects me. It might impact which medicine to give me based on my genes or the dosage or side effects or something. And um, 
And the idea is really like in, in that realm of pharmacogenetics, the idea is to move towards something like personalized medicine. In the long vision, it's like personalized medicine. I might get a medicine that actually is tailored to me. Retreat is your personalized medicine. Yeah. It's your personalized medicine. It is the logic of the Dharma unfolding. I read a um, a story about a, um, a, a mathematician who I, I don't know, and I don't know that whole realm, but had a major impact and then kind of disappeared, and they found some, some writings, journals, and... Um, this was uh, this was in one of those journals. This is after a long time period of, of estrangement and gone sort of off the radar. Uh, wrote, um, I know that there is a nourishing substance in everything that happens to me, whether the seeds are by my own hand or by others. It is up to me to eat it and watch it transform into knowledge. I've learned that in the harvest, however bitter, there is substantial flesh which it is up to us to nourish ourselves with. When this substance is eaten and has become part of our flesh, the bitterness which was only the sign of our resistance to the food intended for us, has disappeared. What arises is not an accident, nor is it your fault. There, there is this, um, this deep conditioning in us that Pain gets personalized. Pain, our suffering, becomes a kind of commentary on who we are. And um, it's somehow like to suffer, that well, that suffering testifies to our defectiveness. And so the pain gets woven together with a kind of shame. And... Um, And sometimes we, we blame, we just look for things to blame. Sometimes the best thing we can find is ourselves. We blame ourselves. But self-blame is often just a way of trying to erase the uncontrollability of experience. It's preferable to blame myself than to actually open to anicca, uncertainty, to all that Kara was talking about. And so in this way, the pain gets personalized and it can kind of harden into some shame. And, um, and shame is really the the underbelly of self 
So wherever, wherever there's self, there can be shame. Wherever we're identified with notions of I, me, mine, we can experience shame. And so you're encouraged as you hear the instructions, as you hear talks, reflections, as you practice on your own, just to be sensitive that, that um, the arising of shame is a signal that some view of self has congealed. And really, in that shame, it is um, just our own contorted plea. Please accept me. This is how I am. You can actually sense the plea in that underbelly of shame. And so, yeah, that, that pain, it's, it's um, and the, the way it gets entangled with the shame, it is begging, begging for your tender gaze. Now, the first noble truth, like that, that there is suffering, that is like, the most normalizing thing that's ever been said, maybe. There is suffering. It is woven into the fabric of existence, to the fabric of our biology. And to really take that in, like there is dukkha, the the Pali word, usually rendered as suffering. There is dukkha. To, um, when you really get that, it, it breaks your heart open. It's, it sometimes feels to me like, you know, there are the, the four noble truths of, of suffering, its cause, the cessation of suffering, the path leading to the cessation. But sometimes I have this feeling like, no, the first truth contains all four. Ajahn Sajito said, um, uh, you know, generally... Generally, people say um, the path starts with wise view. That you know that thing that we twirl on the way through the gate starts with wise view. He said, "Yeah, yeah, okay, fair enough." But really, really, the path begins when the Buddha walks into your heart. That's when the path begins, and. For many people, like actually beginning to open to dukkha is when the Buddha walks into their heart. Beginning to open to this invitation, 
suffering is to be comprehended. And by that suffering, I'm talking about everything from just this subtle urge for the next moment all the way to the most intense, you know, heartache. So we talk about suffering a lot, but to know suffering, to comprehend it, is very different from experiencing it, from being subject to it. And we talk about it a lot because... um, The Buddhist model of well-being is not about generating happiness. It's about deconstructing the obstacles that obstruct happiness. And so there's this kind of negative turn, you know. It's, It's really, you know, freedom is freedom from, yeah? Freedom from the forces of suffering. And then maybe we're freed to love more deeply, care more fully, as Brian was was pointing to. So suffering on its own has no liberatory potential. It's not like, uh, this is not an, an kind of ascetic path where pain by definition is good. I think there's a story of the, of the Buddha who, who met some, uh, you know, renunciate practitioner along the, along the way, and the practitioner was standing on one leg, and the, the, the Buddha asked, like, what are, what are you doing? And, um, said, like, oh, I'm burning up my karma. And uh, Buddha asked, like, okay, how much have you burned up? Don't know. Uh, How much do you have left? Don't know. How will you know when it's all burned up? Don't know. And then the Buddha's like, this is not good. Yeah. Pain on its own is not a blessing, but um, the catch is that um, pain, small or dramatic, um, met with awareness and love has incredible liberatory potential. It's the, uh, often likened to the kind of, um, the compost, the compost of our path, where Thich Nhat Hanh says, no, no mud, no lotus. No mud, no lotus. Lotuses, lotus flowers, they do not grow out of marble, he says. No mud, no lotus. And so, in a profound way, the Buddhist path is about not squandering dukkha, not squandering it. Suffering is usually 
squandered, it does not become wisdom and it does not become love. It becomes armor or hardens us in one way or another. And we on this path, on the Buddhist path, practice transmuting suffering into wisdom, love, and a longing for freedom. Wisdom, love, and a longing for freedom. So normally we, um, we try to kind of like hate away our suffering. And the invitation, the language from one of my own teachers, Shinzen Young, is, is no, 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 don't try to hate it away. Love it to death. Yeah, love it to death. And you use that language, you know. Um, this is this is a oh, yeah, close to twenty years ago. I, I had give, uh, was on a, on a retreat. I was a yogi. I think it was a two week retreat, and really kind of intense, and everyone practicing hard and. Uh, there was a time for question and answers. And one of my, you know, Sangha members, some, a friend of mine, you know, raised her hand and kind of like gave this report of her meditative experience. And um, it was a very good experience. And I did not feel any sympathetic joy <laughs> whatsoever. It was just this like heart piercing envy and me and my pathetic practice and just like when I want what she has, you know, and and um and I was just like it was acute enough that I raised my hand and just confessed to the <laughs> depravity of my own mind state in the moment. And um, and and uh, Shinzen's response was not to teach me, you know, how to engineer her experience, but just said that that uh, that that envy, uh, love it, love it to death. Yeah, and writes um, to. To have uh, to have a complete experience is to love something to death and to know it to death. Whether it's yourself or any sensory event, big or small, when you love it to death and know it to death, you're too busy experiencing it to make an object out of it. So in a sense, it's not there. But... It's not there because you're so busy knowing it, so it's more there. It's both more there and less there than normal human experience, a kind of completeness and a kind of nothingness at exactly the same time. The invitation 
is to to not be entangled in that story in that in that case the story of envy or some whatever it may be to actually step out of the discursive world and to go to the heart of experience to be so busy knowing experience that means we have to put down all kinds of agendas yeah? to be so busy knowing experience all the agendas and expectations that Kara outlined, you know, to control experience, to optimize it, to extract something from it. You know that movement of the heart when it's just like, let me just extract something from the moment. Let me distill out something. Let me get something, you know. We have to put down these agendas And we really are putting down any agenda other than surrendering to the knowing, in the knowing, of the knowing. And this makes experience seem so much more here. Um, There's so much, um, so much intimacy so much intimacy, like we all of a sudden we're like really close to the very texture of our life. But um, the weird thing about knowing is the kind of like the more complete our quality of attention, the more space-like experience becomes. Dukkha has a density to it, a kind of weight, a viscosity. It just feels dense, claustrophobic, heavy. And in this, this knowing, in this deep knowing, experience starts to... Um, starts to feel more and more like different gusts of wind. Starts to be less and less there. And body and mind and sight and sound feel like space. And... um, To say uh, it's empty, empty of substantiality. There's, it's like a felt experience of the the thinning out of self and world. We we both know it. You know, it's it's more there and it's less there. There's nothing else there but there's almost nothing there at all, including our so-called life. We love it to death. In, in Buddhist psychology, the, the wellspring of suffering is really uh, greed, hatred, delusion, 
as the, the kind of clusters. And um, we have to get to know them. We have to get to know these forces. That is part of our our path, part of the path of happiness, is we get to know greed, hatred, delusion, greed, aversion, delusion. And um, it feels, it feels like my problems find me. But from this view, it's more like my defilements find their object. Yeah? Feels like besieged by this or that, you know, problem. But it's more like, oh yeah, my defilement finds an object. And... um, This too, all of this has its own kind of innocence, you know? Kara kind of snuck this in, but she said like, uh, Dhammachanda, this wholesome desire, you know, becomes craving when it is cross-pollinated by fear. Yeah? And she's pointing to the kind of innocence of longing. And uh, all of this, our greed, hate, and delusion, we want to appreciate a certain quality of innocence while having a kind of respect that if we don't wake up to it, it will run our lives as it runs the world. And so, okay, greed, greed. Greed is the kind of like cookie-shaped hole in the center of our being, right? Um, But the cookie, when we do succeed in acquiring said cookie, does not fill the cookie hole, you know? Just like it always overpromises the objects of craving always overpromise that's their hallmark they overpromise and we get seduced again and it's like but but have i tried oreos you know it's like <laughs> so we start to appreciate yeah the objects of craving never end craving they don't end craving we we're, we're sort of subtly hoping for the object of craving to be the end of seeking. But that is not what happens. So we develop equanimity with longing. That's tender. And hatred, aversion, um, there's always something wrong. Yeah. There's always something that could get better. There's always something to uh, to object to, and sometimes it's important, obviously, to object. But um, but we want to see the gestalt of our mind, like like 
there's there's that that urge to fix is said to be the 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 defining characteristic of samsara the urge to fix earlier today just to give you some insight do you know what i had aversion to birds That's embarrassing. <laughs> Bird song. So, what are we to do? Okay. Equanimity with imperfection. No. Equanimity with making a truce with the imperfection of the human condition. And then what about delusion, right? So greed is the kind of very obvious hole in the center of one's being, and hatred is this like fire in the heart. And what is delusion? Well, really, delusion seems exactly like the truth until it doesn't. But it's indistinguishable from truth. Until we learn more, we wake up more. It feels exactly like the truth. And so the question like, how do we detect delusion when we can't distinguish it from wisdom? And um, sometimes say that um, delusion launders our greed and our aversion in the sense that delusion serves to justify and rationalize our greed and our aversion and so when you when you use the example when you launder money you take dirty money and you make it clean yeah um when delusion launders greed, it makes it look like excitement. When delusion launders aversion or hatred, it makes it look like discernment or righteousness. And we get swept up in our rationalizations. And so actually, if we can have equanimity with greed and aversion, we don't need to build and fabricate the stories, the deluded stories that justify and rationalize our clinging, our aversion. Now, a lot of this has to do with... um, our body, transforming dukkha, transmuting dukkha into wisdom, love, longing for freedom. This involves the body. And so before we, we stop, in a few minutes I'll say some words. It is... Um, it's amazing to um, see how much we build 
our world of experience on the basis of a kind of unconscious relationship with our body, with, uh, and especially with affect and emotion, you know, with uh, affect and emotion. Um, so much hinges really on feeling. And we use that word in different ways. Sometimes that's the translation of, of Vedana, of feeling tone. Pleasant, unpleasant, neutral, that's said to, to be a characteristic of each experience. Um, but I'm really talking about the somatic aliveness, the emotional circuits of our body, often kind of face, throat, chest, belly. And um, um, there is, there's so much feeling in our body and we kind of use that data to understand everything like how i'm emotionally impacted by this or that or the other in uh, one sutta the mula sutta it's like all phenomena or all dhammas all phenomena converge on feeling like it's the so central and experience largely becomes meaningful because of feeling and our motivation depends on feeling and the sense of urgency of scratching this itch or moving or doing whatever is arises out of feeling and Feeling is a kind of alarm bell that signals threat or opportunity. And we're like trying to decode the alarm all the time. So yesterday in the the pain uh, discussion, pain and posture discussion, I said something like from the the clinical world, like... uh, Pain, pain is the prediction of bodily harm, right? Pain is the prediction of bodily harm. And dukkha suffering is the kind of a prediction of, I don't know what we say, maybe like existential threat. Every moment of dukkha feels like some kind of existential threat. That's what the alarm bell means. But it's not. If anything, it's a kind of what is being signaled is discomfort. It's really egoic threat. Dukkha is the alarm bell for egoic threat. And we want to stay close to the body because out of that, the feeling, that kind of all the the affect coursing through us, we, we build, 
we build, those are like the building blocks for our story of what this moment is, of who we are, of what needs to happen, of what needs to stop. And so it often seems to me that much of thinking is, is, is kind of, it feels like the exhaust coming off the engine of feeling. Yeah. And it's like, wait a second, those are my precious thoughts, you know. Yeah, they're kind of a little bit of just like the the way we try to like understand the the feeling in our body in a way we try to use that data to control samsara. And so we uh, just stay close to the body. Yeah. So a tattoo of um, on the knuckles, like hold fast yeah and apparently sailors would get that yeah but I, there's something about that that just the image and the those words like hold fast that's not usual buddhist language or something but there's something about that like yeah to weather the body blows of affect of feeling hold fast let let the let your heart be impacted by the feeling world let the forces of attraction and aversion just unfold within the container of that awareness give your body permission to be exactly as it is love the feeling to death And um, we start to transform uh, dukkha into goodness. And um, you actually can feel it. You can feel it, the kind of wholesomeness in it. And even a little bit of freedom in these realms is worth a lot. Just sit for a moment.
So I offer these um, thoughts for your consideration. And um, the invitation, uh, as always, is to uh, uh, pick up whatever belongs in your heart and um, leave all the rest behind. So, um, have um, about about half hour for uh, some walking, and um, um, if you have energy, please uh, come on back. We'll, we'll be back at nine and uh, do a little bit of sitting and, and also chanting. Um, there are chant chant sheets uh, out on the uh, table outside the, the hall. You can grab one as you come in. And um, yeah, please, uh, please enjoy, enjoy your, uh, your evening. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.